You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. If you are using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the pews, it's on page 4. As you're turning there, I was watching a show with my, some of my kids this week in which they had on the former Olympic gymnast, uh, Sean Johnson. And uh, over the course of the show, people were able to write in some questions and then she was answering them. It was really an aside to the show, but what I found more intriguing. And one question in particular they asked her, which was, what is it about being an Olympic gymnast took you the longest or maybe was the hardest to learn? What was interesting, her answer, when she talked about being an Olympic athlete on a, in a sport in which you are graded from a zero to a ten, when the slightest wobble or a slight hop on a landing can, can take you from a gold medal all the way out of contention, it was interesting when she said when, they would, when the judges would score her, it was so difficult, it took so long for her to realize that when they were judging it, they were not judging her, just simply her routine. Now look, I, I'm never going to be an Olympic athlete, should be of no shock, uh, and, and I don't know what it's like to, to, to f- have the felt weight of an entire nation rest upon some performance that I'm about to do, but I do think that I, and probably along with you, we do at least understand and have experienced how draining, how disappointing it can be to, to, to spend our emotional, our physical energy trying to please other people. I think we can understand that. And it's in this, uh, in a very narrow way that Christianity and modern psychology actually agree that, that spending our energy... Spending, spending all of our efforts trying to please other people is folly. It's futile. It's like running a race only to get to the end and look around and realize nobody's watching. That it was all for nothing. Where we would disagree, though, is the solution out of modern psychology is instead of spending your energy trying to to please other people, instead, you should spend your energy, you should spend your time seeking your own pleasure, seeking your own approval. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, that would be just as futile, because I'm just as finicky. And the thing I may be pleased with myself yesterday, I'm not so pleased with myself today. And this is where the Bible says, no, 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 we've got all of that wrong. The Bible shows us that we were created by God, for God, and then therefore to experience real, lasting peace, real, lasting joy, real life, that instead of living for our own pleasure, we're to seek only to be pleasing to God. Now, as Andrew just read that passage, which he did a fantastic job reading all of those names, what may not have been overly clear is that we are going to be looking today on what it looks like to live a life that is pleasing to God. And so if I could sum up our, that entire chapter, I would say it like this, from Adam to Noah, 
death and grace are both present, pointing us toward future judgment and future salvation. And then for us this morning... What is needed to then be to, to needed to please God is not to live this great, fantastic life. You don't have to be an Olympic athlete to please God. No, instead, we should live in such a way that God is seen to be great through us. Even though dull in appearance, if we're honest, this chapter is not without its challenges, of course, namely these incredibly long lifespans. And then if we add everything up, it just somehow doesn't feel like maybe we have enough history. And so what is going on here in Genesis 5? Now, before we get what I would, t- to the meat, if you will, or the plant-based meat, I guess, uh, in 2023. But before I get to that of our text, I want to make four quick remarks concerning things like the long lifespans and the uh, not enough history, potentially. Because to be honest, it's those kind of questions that times people, they conclude that Genesis 5, along with some of the other early chapters of Genesis, is nothing more than religious myth. So what do we make of this? So four quick remarks. The first is we need to acknowledge that Genesis 5 understands itself to be presenting real and not symbolic history. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors understood it that way as well. Second, the Bible is full of word pictures to remind us how fleeting our life is. It calls our lives vapors or mists or breaths or flowers that that die and are blown away. It's as though our mortality and the shortness of our life is screaming to us that we are to take hold of something that lasts. We are to take hold of something that is important. Something that we ought to dedicate our lives to because the things of this world are fleeting. And third, we need to understand some of the language here. For example, this Hebrew phrase that he fathered or he became the father of can be used in a multitude of ways especially in a genealogy. It can be used for a direct son-to-father relationship, of course. But it can also be referred uh, to a relationship of, of ancestral connection. An example, there are places in the Bible in which a man is said to have fathered his great, great grandson and their lives didn't even overlap at all. They're they're kind of like signposts along the way to lay out a descent, a line of descent. What it means is that there are parts or all of of a genealogy that maybe were never intended to give you every single element of what's going on there. Namely, that the line between Adam and Noah may have been ten generations or it may have been more. But I'm not going to answer that necessarily for you because the fourth remark, it may be most important is that Christians who claim that the Bible is the inspired word of God and therefore inerrant and infallible that maybe we need to step back for just a moment and understand both the purpose and the limits of our apologetics, especially when it comes to science and Scripture. Look, apologetics are important. I make no claims about that. Non-Christians have real questions that need reasonable and respectful answers. That's what I tried to do very quickly, obviously, in the first few remarks. But at the same time, we Christians need to understand that no one was ever argued into the kingdom of God. 
fundamentally, our problem is not an intellectual problem. Fundamentally, our problem, all of us, is a moral one. People don't reject God because they can't rationalize or put together Genesis 1 through 11 with their high school science class. People reject God. People reject Christ because they are in moral rebellion against him. So Christian, do your apologetics. Engage with our world. But don't forget, unless they repent of their moral sin, not their intellectual one, our apologetics are in vain. So do your apologetics, but hold out Christ. Hold out Christ, for he is the power of God to bring sinners into right relationship with their creator. All right, so that's my four quick remarks. If you have questions on those, be happy to talk about that. But with those in mind, we come to Genesis 5 as real, true history about real, true people. So as we think this morning of what it means to, to please God, I want you to notice three observations from our passage. I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them. First, I want you to hear the drumbeat of death that sounds throughout the entire chapter. Secondly, I want you to notice the guarantee of grace that is hidden in the other rather humdrum details of this genealogy. And lastly, thirdly, I want you to consider the walk of faith to be followed when we read about Enoch and look at his life in a little bit. The drumbeat of death the guarantee of grace, and the walk of faith to follow. So the first one, hear the drumbeat of death. It's, it's, it's hard to miss. As Andrew was reading it, eight times, eight times in these 32 verses, each generation punctuated with the phrase, then he died. In reality, it's a strange phrase to be in a genealogy. A genealogy is a record of births. And it's even stranger in this genealogy for a list of people who lived really, really long lives. Maybe so long that they began to wonder, or others began to wonder whether they were going to die at all. Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. And so it goes. The drumbeat of death, though, is, is even further amplified when we look at the introduction to this genealogy in verses 1 and 2. In, in verses 1 and 2, what we really get is a, is a quick summary of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 of man's creation, man's calling of God. In verse 1, we're introduced, we, we talked about this back in Genesis 2, we're introduced to a new section. The author would, would give us a new section saying how moving the story along. This time from Adam all the way to Noah, from creation all the way to destruction. We've already spent considerable time going over Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So suffice it to say that, that, that when God created man and women, when, when God created them, death wasn't in the picture. So what happened? What happened is Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good purpose for them. What happened is Adam and Eve earned God's wrath and his justice and his judgment on their lives. God had given them everything they could want or need. In the garden, there were all of these trees, all of these plants in which they could eat of. He gave them work that had purpose, and he gave them his very self in communion with them. He gave them everything. and said, just don't eat of that one tree. 
love me more than that, or else you will surely die. Listen again to how Genesis 3 describes it in verse 6, Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and thought it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, and so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Pleasing to the eye. Desirable. Adam and Eve sought to please themselves rather than God. And so in his justice, God, who had created them for life, condemned them to death. And so later in Genesis 3, God says to Adam, For you are dust, and you will return to dust. But not just Adam and Eve, but every single one of the rest of us as well. All of Adam's descendants, as highlighted here in this genealogy, ending with, then he died. And our own lives testify to that. Many of you have experienced death in family or friends. It feels as as though at times death actually still reigns in this world. But lest we think for a moment that we are somehow suffering for someone else's crimes Let me encourage you to this morning to consider our own hearts. The truth of the matter is we're no different than Adam and Eve. The truth of the matter is that we still are guilty of living to please ourselves rather than God. And so like Adam and Eve, we have earned God's death penalty. Physical death in this life. And conscious eternal torment in hell in the one to come. The totality of judgment didn't come immediately for Adam. He lived 930 years before he died. But the judgment did come. Surely, inevitably, relentlessly, then he died. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You need to understand that death is not natural. You need to understand that it's not just a natural course of life. No, death is the direct intervention of a God who made us. And it's the ongoing evidence that he is not pleased with us. I know it's not pleasant for you to think about this morning. It's a lot easier to think of God as this jolly grandfather who chuckles at our mistakes, who winks at our sins. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. I don't take particular joy in telling you that this morning. And I'm not meaning to manipulate you to try to get you to believe something you don't believe or to take some action that you don't want to take. But I do mean to disabuse you of the notion that death is natural and therefore we should just somehow embrace it or accept it. I do mean to try to wake you from a spiritual slumber that tries to ignore death and pretend it's not going to happen. And I do mean to try to call your attention to something this morning that this world tries to distract you from with its pursuit of wealth and pleasure and success. Like Adam, like Seth, like Enosh, like Kenan, like all of the rest, you and I are going to die. And friend, the message of the Bible is clear that if we die outside of faith with Christ... We are going to find a God who is displeased with us and we will experience his eternal wrath. So friend, if you are here this morning and you consider nothing else, 
Consider the fact, the reality of death. Don't just consider the reality of death out there. Consider the reality of your death. And turn to God and seek mercy. And turn to God and find his grace in Jesus Christ. Now it's grace that brings me to the second observation I want us to notice this morning. I want us to notice the guarantee of grace that is hidden in the details of this genealogy. We've already looked at the repeated phrase, then he died, but there's another repeated phrase. Look at verse 3. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son and named him Seth. Verse 6, again, Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. And once more in verse 9, Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan, and on it goes. I won't read them all to you again, but ten times... Ten times a birth of a son is recorded. Life continues despite the curse. And even though Adam and Eve are sentenced to death, their death is delayed, but, but delayed so that life can continue. Friends, that's mercy. That's grace. Death delayed is mercy, right? We didn't get what we deserved right away, but the reason why death is delayed is grace, so that life could continue. Now let me quickly just kind of split that for you and and what we mean when we're talking about grace on one level when we consider the birth of children when we look at Cain's genealogy last week and we look at Seth's genealogy this week and we see that children are being born to both I think we need to understand the continued birth of children as God's common grace and what I mean by that it's it's the favor of the Lord that is extended to all people universally look back at verse 1 Adam was created in the likeness of God. In verse 3, Adam passed on his likeness to his son Seth. And even though it's not repeated in the rest of the genealogy, we are to understand that even in the cursed world, the image of God is passed down to each person ever created. Every person ever conceived then is, is of value. They have worth, they have dignity, and then they have the responsibility and the opportunity to serve God and to enjoy his blessing. Even Cain last week, murderous Cain, bore the image of God. And he experienced the common grace of having children and having a whole lineage after him. That was common grace, though he wasted that grace. That's why, Christian, we are to be concerned about all of life and everything it entails because it is a gift of God. We are, we are to be concerned about the struggle of the unborn. We are, to be, we are to be concerned about the struggle of those already born. We should be aware of, we should care about how life is treated from beginning to end. The way it is nurtured, the way it is cared for, the way it is respected or not respected. Because that life is a gift of God's common grace and we should care about But there's even more here going on than just in Genesis 5 than a statement on God's common grace. This genealogy, as opposed to last week's, speaks of God's saving grace. Grace that leads to salvation in Christ Jesus. For each of the births recorded in Genesis 5 guarantees that God was keeping his promise. Back in Genesis 3, again, when God confronts Adam and Eve and the serpent, he does curse them. But he doesn't only curse them, he also makes a promise. In Genesis 3.15, as Pastor Cody went over a couple weeks ago, 
that from the woman there was coming one who would be born and, and crush the head of Satan. We just sang about sin's tyranny, but he was going to deliver his people from that tyranny of sin. And he was going to usher back in God's people into right relationship with God. It wasn't Cain, though, that the Savior was coming through. Would it be this line of Seth's? We have a couple of hints that it might be. When we look at how God is working to bring about salvation, we, we're going to get to Enoch more clearly in just a little bit. But it points to the fact that death doesn't have to have the final authority. In verse 29, Lamech names his son Noah, hoping that he would bring relief from the curse, that he would bring rest from the struggle of a sin-stricken world. And as we're going to see in the next few weeks, there will be a sense of recreation after judgment. Both of these serve as pointers towards what God is doing and the grace that is hidden in these verses. But in the immediate context of Genesis chapter 5, Seth and all the other ones, they eventually die and nothing has really changed. Nothing really looks that different. In fact, as we're going to see next week, things get really a lot worse, not better. Thousands of years, in fact, are going to pass. Thousands of years. People are waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Genealogies are continuing to be written by God. This one through Noah, and then to Shem, and then on to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Judah, and to down to David's line and all of his family. And even while all of these genealogies are being traced, sin and death still reign to the point, and we saw some of this in our study in First and Second Kings in our equip class last year, we get to the point where even David's line looks lost in obscurity. But then one night, about 2,000 years ago, angels appeared in the sky to some shepherds. And they told him that the son was born. But this son wasn't like all the ones that had come before. No, this son is the son of promise, one from the line of David, the one who could heal his people from their sins. This is the one who would crush the head of Satan. This is the one that the world had been waiting on, and he had now come onto the scene. In the midst of sin, in the midst of the brokenness of Genesis chapter 5, there is grace. Grace that sin or the death does not have to reign. Grace that, that rest was coming, though not as Lamech expected, but it was coming, but only after judgment. Well, friends, if death is the bad news, then here's the good news of Christianity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the throne of heaven to take on flesh of creation, to live the life that was very different from yours and mine. For he lived a life that was perfectly submitted to God, where he perfectly submitted his will to the Father's, even to the point of dying on a cross. Rather than pleasing himself or others, he only sought the pleasure of his father. And there on the, perfect, there on the cross, his perfect life is given as a pleasing sacrifice to God, not for his sins, but for yours and mine. And the good news is that every single person who repents of their sin and turns to Christ for salvation will be forgiven and be and put in a right relationship with their God. The grace that is guaranteed but not yet realized in Genesis 5 is realized later in Christ. 
No longer after Christ would death have to reign because Jesus rose from the grave. No longer would we have to experience only the curse of sin because we have relief in the peace of God that we have those who are in Christ. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to see that grace. It's not just for those who don't yet know Christ. You need to see that grace. Because this world is broken. But be reminded, if God keeps his promise, his most important promise, then he'll keep every other promise he's ever made. And so in the most unexpected way, he sent his son as the fulfillment of the promise of grace. And so Christian, just as we have received Christ Jesus, as as Colossians 2.6 tells us, we are to continue to walk in him. And walking in Christ brings us now to our third observation. We've mentioned him briefly, we've referenced him lightly, but now I want us to focus more closely on Enoch himself and his life. And I want you to consider the walk of faith that is meant to be followed. There are three deviations from the formulaic pattern in Genesis 5. We've already talked about Adam, and his isn't really a deviation, his is more of an expounding of Seth being created in his image that really should be passed down to every one of them. We saw Lamech name his son, hoping to bring relief, and now we get to look at Enoch. Last week, we saw the seventh generation from Adam through Cain to be sin's full effect in the world, of how how terrible a different Lamech, one from Genesis chapter 4, and the full effect of sin in his life, and yet, in all of the monotony of Genesis chapter 5, The wording concerning this seventh generation through Seth should jump off the page. Let me look again at Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. After he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was not there because God took him. We would expect, based on the formula, that it would say something in verse 22. Instead, like Enoch lived 300 years after he fathered Methuselah, and he fathered other sons and daughters, and on and on, right? What we expect. And yet, that's not what it does. It doesn't say that Enoch just lived 300 years. What does it say? It says he walked with God. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to that in just a second. But there's a second thing that's missing. At the end of every other generation, it says, then he died. And yet, in verse 24, that's not what we have. We have this really very enigmatic, mysterious statement that he wasn't there because God took him. This is language similar to that of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. When Elijah is said to have just been taken in a whirlwind. Like Elijah, Enoch did not taste death. He was immediately translated directly from this life into the very presence of God. And why was that? Because the Bible says he walked with God. There's something obviously very different about Enoch's life than all of the rest of the ones listed here. The language of walking with God is actually only said directly of one other person in all of the Old Testament, and that is going to be Noah, as we'll see next week. Obviously, Adam walked with God in the garden before the fall. It uses similar language there. 
But the idea of walking with God is, is very unique into the, in the Old Testament. Now, the language of living righteously before God is pretty common. And that means that we will observe or we will have the responsibility to obey God, that we will keep His commands, that we will be faithful to God. That sounds great. But somehow walking with God implies not only obedience, not only faithfulness, which includes that, of course, but it's speaking of something much, much deeper. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of fellowship. It speaks of friendship. Enoch walked with God because he enjoyed being in the presence of God. Enoch walked with God because he had no desire for anything outside of what God had for him. His thoughts, his desires, who he was trying to please was God and God alone. It's not Adam and it's not Noah that the author of Hebrews chooses to call out in Hebrews 11 here. As the one who walked with God. Now let me read it for you or you can turn in your own Bible to Hebrews 11 verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken away so he did not experience death. He was not found because God took him away. But listen to this. For before he was taken away, he was approved, he was approved as one who pleased God. Enoch pleased God. Well, how did he do that? Well, it wasn't that he lived a perfect life. We've already talked about it. It was Jesus alone who, who lived the perfectly pleasing life to God through his obedience. No, Hebrews 11 tells us that Enoch pleased God not by his works but by his faith. Let me read for you the very next verse in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God through his belief in God and through his trust that God would reward him as he sought him. Now, let me make very clear when Hebrews eleven six says that we must believe that God exists, this is not some mental assent to theism. Enoch didn't just believe in the idea of a God. No, he believed in the one true God that has revealed himself to mankind fully, finally, as Jesus Christ. It's the kind of belief where you trust God that what he says, that when he says, if you will turn from your sins, you will be forgiven that when you place your faith in Christ, you will be put right in a right relationship to God. It's a belief that lives, uh, leads us to live a life, as Calvin put it, with respect to God alone. Think about that for a minute. If you lived your life, that it could be said that you lived with respect to God alone. It's a belief that leads us to seek God, to seek only His approval. To seek only to please him. Does that describe your belief today? You may have grown up in church your entire life. You may have been in church and doing things about the church for every day you can ever remember of your life. So of course you believe this, right? Of course you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm not asking you what you believe intellectually. I'm asking you what you believe as demonstrated by your life. The faith that pleases God is a faith that utterly revolutionizes our lives. 
to faith that reorients our ambitions, our lives, our loves. Because the faith that leads us to draw near to God and to never leave that position. Enoch believed fully in the one true God. He sought him with all of his being. And his reward? The shortest life in all the genealogies. But the greatest reward because he didn't have to taste the bitter pill of death. The goal of this life should not be to do everything we can to extend our life here. To acquire for ourselves everything necessary to live a life of comfort. And to enjoy all the pleasures of this world here. No, our aim ought to be to draw near to God and to stay there with Him until He calls us home. Friends, we live in a broken world. We live in a world that when you turn on the TV or the news feed or whatever, all it looks like is that sin and death still reign. The Bible calls our lives mists. And in the scope of all of human history, our lives are but a speck. It's true. Just like the generations before us and the ones that will come after us, people will be born, they will live for a while, and then they will die. And they will die because of the death penalty that they have earned, that we have earned, because we have rebelled against God, living for ourselves and our own pleasure rather than pleasing Him. But just as there's the promise of grace in Genesis 5, so we now have the guarantee of grace because God fulfilled his promise in Christ. Jesus did come. Jesus did live the perfect life you and I couldn't live. And he did die in your place and for you on the cross, not for anything he had done wrong, but for you and for me. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he was raised from the grave. He walked out of that tomb never to experience death again. He assured for us. He secured for us life because of his life and death. God's grace to be poured out on us, on all who call on the name of God in repentance because of what Christ did. And those who repent of their sins, and those of us who have already done that, we are now entered into an everlasting relationship with our God but we're also called to walk with him closely and to be rewarded by him eternally. Jude 14 tells us that Enoch understood God's judgment of sin brought, that it brought death. But I bet if we could have asked him, Enoch also understands better than any of us that walking with God, that fellowship with God brings life. Friends, this chapter... Chapter 5 reveals to us that even though death reigns over all of human history, humans are still made in the image of God. That the blessing of walking with God is still available if we walk with God in obedience and faithfulness and devotion. While death may appear to reign, death is not the final authority. God can overrule it instantly as he did with Enoch, as he did with Elijah, as he has done in Christ. But until he does that fully and finally for us, each generation awaits the relief to come in Christ's return. But it is God and God alone who can change darkness to light, who can change cursing to blessing, who can change death to life. 
and the hope of the human race will be realized in the age to come when Christ returns. Just as in Noah's day, as we're going to see, the rest, the relief comes only after judgment. Friends, we can escape that judgment. We can escape that judgment today by placing saving faith in Christ. And if you're already a Christian, then grace has already been extended to you and you ought to live in gratefulness to that. So even in the brokenness of this world, persevere in your faith. Draw near to God and then stay there until he calls you home. Pray with me. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in a, in a chapter early in the book of Genesis, that on the onset looked pretty dry. God teaches us so much about the reality of the world that we live in. That when you created men and women, you created them to live endlessly. But because of sin, we experience and we hear the drumbeat of death. Then he died. Then she died. But God, in the midst of all of that, God, you're a God of grace. You guaranteed for us through these that would come after Adam through Seth until the time in which Christ would come and would crush the head of Satan, defeating sin and defeating death on the cross and through his resurrection. And God, that grace extended to us who place faith in Christ. And God, those of us who walk in faith, God, you have now called us to draw near to you. That our desires, that our wants, that our ambitions, that our loves would be focused on you and you alone. So that we would live with respect to no one else but you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your patience with us as we're learning this. God, I pray even this morning for those who might be here that do not know you, or they may think they know you until they understand that their life doesn't match up with a life of faith. God, I pray that you will do a saving work in their life even today. God, we love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.